Welcome to Grassroots Nation, a podcast from Rohini Nilekini Philanthropies, a show in which we dive deep into the life, work, and guiding philosophies of some of our country's greatest leaders of social change. Sanjit Roy, better known as Bunker Roy, was born in 1945 in Burnpur, Asansol. He studied at the Doon School and then at St. Stephen's College in Delhi, where he left his mark not just as a student, but as a keen sportsperson, as the Indian national squash champion in 1965, and represented India internationally in three international championships. But it was a visit to Bengal during the famine in 1965 that affected him deeply and made him question the privilege he enjoyed. After college, Bunker rejected a prospective career in the private sector to work in rural India. After a few short assignments, Bunker moved to Thelonia village in Rajasthan, where he began working on water issues in that very drought-prone region. In 1972, Bunker set up the Social Work and Research Center, and their work expanded from water and irrigation to include broader issues such as empowerment and livelihoods. The Social Work and Research Center now called the Barefoot College, is built on Gandhian principles of practicality, local indigenous knowledge, and self-sufficiency. The impact of the Barefoot College is difficult to quantify and goes well beyond the thousands of rural women from across the world who have been trained as solar engineers to include innovations in water, energy, livelihoods, education, and sustainability. Bunker Roy is in conversation with journalist and curator of Ahimsa Conversations, Rajni Bakshi. Hi Bunker, so good to see you. Hi Rajni, good to see you too. Especially after COVID, you're looking good. Thank you. For once, someone is saying I'm looking good. Otherwise, everyone thinks I'm looking malnourished. I don't know why people think that. But I've lost 20 kilos, I could have done it in a better way, but that's, that's, it's okay now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, very good to see you back in action. So, Bankar, you've often talked about the impact of the Bihar famine on you as a very young person. I think you may have been still in college when you went and saw for yourself what a calamity that was and how it shaped your life. But why rural India? With your background, with your elite education and your class background you could easily have sought to be relevant you know you've spoken about wanting to give back why in villages did you want to give back i went to the bihar famine in 1965 and that was out of sheer curiosity because i didn't know what bharat was like i had no idea i wasn't exposed to anything like that and i had a sort of a cloistered existence i didn't know what real india was like so At that time, Suman Dubey said, "Why don't we go down to Bihar?" Because he knew. Am I right? You were both students at Doon. Suman was senior to me. Suman was Rajiv Gandhi's friend, same classmate, and they were 1959 in Doon School. I was in 61. I left. He left in 59. So Suman said, "Why don't we go down?" Because he had a colleague called Kumar Suresh Singh, who was the DC of Palamu, very nice man, very gentle. He said. Why don't you go and do a survey of some villages in Chainpur block? And so me, Suman, and another English professor called Brijraj Singh came with me. And Desmond Doig from the Junior Statesman, if you remember, Desmond covered us in the Junior Statesman in 1971. All the three of us went and did some surveys of starvation deaths and what is happening there. 
big shock because I had no idea there was a part of India that was going through this. It was a very traumatic experience for me, very traumatic. I still think about those days in the Bihar famine. And I said that, what am I doing here? I'm getting the best, so-called best education and I can't do something in the villages of India. So that's when it sort of sparked in my mind. I'd like to do something. But how did you find Thelonia? Because you had no connection before that with Rajasthan, if I'm not mistaken. So there was 1967 Indian National Squash Champion. I think you were travelling abroad also to represent India. New Zealand and Australia. And there I was. Uh, and so there were jobs coming all over. Greenlays Bank, corporate sector. That's a really funny thought, Bunker, if you had been a banker with a pinstripe suit and all that. Horrible thought. But the first job I got in a village was with uh, Catholic Relief Services. They gave me a project for deepening 500 wells in Ajmer district. And that is my first exposure to Ajmer. And for, f and for two years, from 67 to 69, I was digging 500 wells for the CRS. The CRS had got money from the UACID to do this work. So when I arrived at the Catholic Relief Services office, which was in the cathedral, the Roman Catholic cathedral, Father Albuquerque said, you, come, you live here and uh, commute from here up and down. And I said, Father, but I'm going to be getting some money from the villages, so may I deposit it with you? So he said, yeah, sure, because I'm not doing it anything free. So I started, and then all of a sudden rumors started spreading, saying, what is this Hindu doing in a work with CRS? That was 1967. They couldn't figure it out why I had been asked to do this. So all of a sudden, I saw mysterious gifts coming into my house. You know, a little shirt here, a little kurta there, a little... I said, what's happening, Father? Oh, why am I getting all these gifts? They said, the Christian community has taken a decision that you must be an orphan. Otherwise, you wouldn't be... When I heard that, I went and told my mother, clipped British accent, very, very posh and very, very stubborn, very, very snooty. I said, you better come hot foot brown here and show yourself because otherwise they think I'm an orphan. So she came down and everyone was a bit, Mother, I said, yes. <laughs> I said, she's the one who's... So that deeply disappointed them that I wasn't an orphan, I was a Hindu. But I completed the work and then I went back to the father and said, Father, you know, I collected a bit of money. And it's USAID money and the auditors here. So please let us see where the money... He said, come, come, I'll show you, son, where the money is. So he took me into the church and said, this is where the money has gone. He went and floored the whole church with that money. And I said, Father, but that was not allowed as USAID money. You can't floor your church when you feel like. But he did that. Anyway, damage was done. And I was hauled up for embezzlement. Because they said the money is your, your responsibility and you didn't. Because it was on paper, it was in your charge. So I got fired by CRS, by Catholic Relief Services in 1969. But by then, I had gone to many villages all over Ajmer district. And there was a chap who was with me, he was a driller. His name was Megraj. And Megraj taught me everything about drilling. Compressors, rock drills, explosives, how to put it in. And so 
that was a great uh, opener for me. And then Megra said, you know, there's a small place called Thelonia where I come from. Why don't you come have a look at it? I said, no, no, I'm not interested. I don't know what it's called. I said, all right, So I went there, saw this village of Thelonia. He said, there is this TB sanatorium, which is lying there. It was taken over by the State Warehousing Corporation, all full of fertilizers. So I said, if I want to work, I better take over this campus. So it was 45 acres, all buildings, heritage buildings, old buildings. I said, sure. I said, I'll try and find out if I can uh, get that in my possession. So then I went to, you know, and as they say, it's not know-how, but know-who. So then I went to Jaipur and Chief Secretary that time was Mohan Bukhiji, who was distantly related to us. There was a mad, mad bureaucrat called Vinod Pandey, who was the development commissioner. I said, Sam, I want it for, I want to start working there. He said, you are from St. Stephen's, you guys don't last long, so I'll give it to you for a year. I said, please give it to me for a year and give it to me for one rupee. One rupee, lelo, but you won't last long. I said, okay, but give it to me for one year and for one rupee. He gave it. Then I had to get the endorsement of the community. So there was a temple halfway up the mountain in Thelonia, where there used to be a priest there. The whole community elders said, I said, I don't believe in all this. He said, no, no, you not So the priest said, you will not last long. The whole community said, oh, what are you saying? You can see in the future. I said, well, you can see in the future, but I want to stay a bit longer here. He said, you won't last long. Okay. The endorsement of the community was not uh, welcome. The priest had it all. Fortunately, the priest ran off with some silver. I said, dekhye sahab. After six months, he went and ran off with some silver. I said, look, these are the priests you are looking at. These are the priests you are depending on. So after that, at least I got some peace and quiet to do some work. But there was a 45-acre campus, 21 buildings, all lying deserted. And I said, what am I going to do here? How am I going to fill this up? You know, it's... So, first one who walked into the door was a gentleman called Ram Baba. Distinguished Harijan. Beautiful face. Perfect poise. He said, I've come here to work with you. I said, why? What is your claim to fame? He said, my grandfather built this place. And whoever has come to this as the new owner, I believe you're the new owner, you're a little chitavanyan, but you're the new owner, so you give me a job. So Rambaba got the first job of Thelonia. And, uh, and he was off Thelonia village. He was off Thelonia village. He From was, the Harijantola. Uh, Harijantola. So two of us were trying to... And our first issue was water, always. Rajasthan, water. So we did a survey for the... Groundwater board of 21, of 110 houses for water. Did a very detailed geological survey of water. And by which time I'd also spread the word around that I was looking for people who would join me. So we had an emblem which was designed by Madhur Kapoor, very great designer. He designed our, the logo that we had was farmer and professional. So we attracted a lot of people from the urban areas to come and join us as professionals. One was a geologist. One was a soil scientist. One was just interested. Some of them happened to be Bengalis. So they had heard about us. They had read the junior statement. The junior statement gave us wide coverage. 
But how are you feeding everyone? I mean, how did you raise money for all this? Mrs. Roy? She was already working. She was already in the Indian Administrative Service. That's an important thing we missed. How did you and Aruna meet? Many people want to know and they've never got the answer to this. She didn't recognize me for one year. We were both in the same class doing English honors in Delhi University. So she didn't recognize me. Someone had pointed, I was pointed out to her saying that this guy is interested in you. He's always looking at you all the time. All these girls were gossiping away together. So that's the first time she recognized that I existed. This was 1966. And then 1967, I left university, but I still carried on pursuing her. And then she got into the service in 1968. I still kept writing letters to her. So finally in 1970, she agreed. But she'll give you a different version, I'm sure. So Aruna's salary was covering some of this. All. I had, I had no money. So I said, where should I raise money? So then I got to Sarkar, who was the principal of St. Stephen's College. And he was the president of my board when I registered it. So Sarkar said, go and speak to Tata Trust, because Tata Trust might give you some money. There was a joint secretary called Chandi Ramani, who used to look after Tata Trust in the 70s. And Chandi Ramani and old man Choksi, Professor Choksi, who was alive then, Professor Choksi gave me 10 seconds. He said, you are from St. Stephen's College. Sarkar recommended you, so you must be all right. We'll give you a bit of money to start. So the Old Boys Club has its uses. Oh, yes, yes, yes. There's no question. The Old Boys Club has its uses all along. All along. Not only there. It started with there. So Chandi Ramani said, we'll give you a princely sum at that time of 20,000 rupees to start your organization. So the first donation I got was from Tata Trust. So we started doing the groundwater survey. We covered 110 villages, but then, you know, every organization must go through series of crises. Can't have an organization that has no crises. We started in 1972. Aruna resigned from the service in 1974 and joined me. And with her administrative experience, she wanted to bring in some systems and management systems into place, which all these professionals hated. They didn't think this was a good idea because you know, it will be a bit more professional. So that was the first crisis when Aruna came and tried to bring in some systems into place and lots of people resented it. So most of them left. First lesson, never depend on professionals from outside, urban professionals from outside. Always develop the capacity and competence of people from within the organization first, because they are the ones who will be there to stay forever and forever. So that was the first lesson I received. And it held me up to now, because I think we must develop the grassroots leadership and depend on them to carry the organization. The second thing I learned was that there was a difference between literacy and education. You know, what Mark Twain said, never let school interfere with your education. School is where you learn how to read and write. Education is what you learn from your family, your environment, and your community. So I felt that we must distinguish the two. We mustn't put them, because when people say, Arisab, they're uneducated. I said, no, please. They're illiterate, but they're not uneducated. When did this become clear to you, Bunker? Because this, I think, is the key turning point when you realized that you were there to learn from the people rather than to teach them. At that time, we started three experimental schools under the Center for Educational Technology. And the experiment was to take people from the village and make them into barefoot teachers. 
without the educational qualification and certification. That is how it started. चिलावा से 243 किलोमीटर आगे तिलोनिया का बेयरफुट कॉलेज समाज की गरीब एवं कम पढ़ी लिखी महिलाओं को विज्ञान और तकनीक से जोड़कर उन्हें सशक्त बना रहा है इस कॉलेज में देश और दुनिया की उन तमाम महिलाओं को तकनीकी रूप से सक्षम बनाया जाता है जो समाज में खुद की पहचान बनाने का सपना देखती है there is a difference between literacy and education and you shouldn't give too much importance to certification especially in in rural areas so ct was a breakthrough for us so that was the first crisis that we went the second crisis was there was a chap from the village we hired and we found he was embezzling money so i fired him in 1976 in 1977 he became the mla of the area and he started shouting and screaming in the state assembly lakhon rupees ka durupyog ho raha hai gulchhare urane wale ias officers ke adda hai ye aapko jaanch karwana chahiye all shouting and screaming so the bhairav singh at that time was the chief minister of rajasthan that's bhairav singh shekhawat shekhawat bhairav singh called me and said sir i'm sorry ek inquiry hame bethana hoga aise sir humne galti kya kiya isse sir mla chilla rahe hain khilaf bahut bol rahe hain So you have to go through this inquiry. I said, "All right, go through this inquiry." There was a chap called Kailash Meghwal, who was the minister, who was asked to conduct the inquiry. So he sent a gentleman called Mr. Agarwal. Mr. Agarwal came and said, "Sir, I want to put my cards on the table." I said, "What's happened?" He said, "I am going to send a negative report to you before I even started." I said, "Why?" मेघवाल कॉल मी एंड सेड आपने सही रिपोर्ट दिया तो आपका काम हो जाएगा सो आई सेड वॉट काम ट्रांसफॉर्मेर टू जयपुर अगरवाल साहब आप भेजिए जरूर पुश कीजिए आप लिख लीजिए दिक्कत नहीं है डोंट वरी डोंट वरी प्लीज कंडक्ट द रिपोर्ट सर रिपोर्ट इज डेडली अगेंस्ट मी एंड एट दैट टाइम चीफ सेक्रेटरी कॉल मिस्टर भनोट मिस्टर भनोट सेड इन नाइनटीन सेवेंटी नाइन you will have to leave telonia because the inquiry is against you this was in june 1978 1979 january you have to leave september i get a letter from the world bank president mcnamara saying i want to visit telonia there's a private visit so i went with that letter to the bernot and i said sir dekhiye aap to hame nikal rahe ho but world bank president wants to come and see telonia are How do you know him? I said I don't know him. He must have selected random to come. Have you got electricity? I said no. Running water? I said no. Where is he going to sleep? On the floor. I said World Bank president sleeping on the floor. Is that? Look at the image of Rajasthan. He said he wanted to see how the rural poor live. So I'm going to make it as rural as possible for him. and he didn't come alone he came in mac bundy who was the national security advisor to president kennedy so both these distinguished americans slept on the floor in telonia and they loved every moment of it i don't know if you've been to telonia but there's a road from the national highway from patan to telonia there's about a 7 km road 60 cars were piled up there on that road their entourage so i told bob i said please half an hour just open it up 
because, you know, I have to survive in this place. World Bank president face came down, you know, no longer Bob McNamara, World Bank president. And you know, these people are like, they come with their files, chumchas all over the place, 60 people coming. So Banot says, um, there's a 200 crore proposal lying with the World Bank, which we haven't heard of. Can you tell us what's happened to the proposal? You know, cheapy things to do. So Bob said, you know, only files over 500 crores come to me, so I haven't seen your file. Matter stopped right there, Kataxe went down. And <laughs> there's nothing more to say because he hadn't seen the file. But he said something to me which still sticks to my mind. He said, look, if you can't make your point in one page, then 30 pages won't make a difference. If in that first page you can convince me, I'll be all for it. Still stuck to me what Bob told me there. Mrs. Gandhi came back into power in 1979, so I'm still here. <laughs> so now, about the emergency, did that affect you and the life of the Tilonia endeavour in any way? I think uh, Mark Tully came in 1976 and he... Uh, and the first thing I said, Mark, please don't ask me about the emergency, but of course the first thing he said was, what do you think about the emergency? He was being a journalist as he is. I said, <coughs> I would like to keep this part of my life separate from the work I'm doing in development work. This part meaning the political, your political convictions. Yeah. Because I wouldn't want to mix the two. Because then it becomes complicated and you can't unscramble that egg at all. So I kept away from the political scene for the last 50 years. Because I was always associated with the Doon School and St. Stephen's College. I couldn't get that out of the mind of lots of people around. Bureaucrats, politicians, all said, congressy I said, I'm not a congressy, but because I went to the Doon School, they felt that there was some... So in 1967, when I was digging wells, as soon as I came out of one of the wells, there was a cop waiting outside on top of the well saying, you've been arrested. I said, what's happened? He said, you haven't answered the summons that was issued to you. I said, what summons? He said, didn't you get the summons? You were being summoned by the district collector and you didn't answer four summons, so you arrested, come and the district collector wants to see you. So in my bedraggled uh, well digging clothes, I was produced in front of the collector. At that time, I thought I better speak my king's English, otherwise I'll be in big trouble. So I said, why am I here? He said, ah, you speak English? I said, yes, I do speak English, but why am I here? He said, you haven't answered the summons. I said, well, I have answered the summons. I didn't know what summons to answer to because I didn't get it. Where are you from? I said, I'm from Delhi. Oh, St. Stephen's College. St. Stephen's College, my college. So you couldn't have probably done that. That was Anil Bodia, my first exposure with Anil Bodia. First exposure, 1967. <laughs> the whole thing, I was really grateful that I went to St. Stephen's College in my earlier years. So all along the way, I've had these crises. And as a result of us managing to survive, we have become stronger as a result. Because we have really worked for the very poor people. But Bunker, is it when you say that you've become stronger as a result, 
could it be that the second and third tier of your organization were also involved in overcoming and addressing these crises you are in a leadership role and yet there's a very palpable sense that i get when i observe the people around you your team of everyone feeling very much an authority in their own right so how did this whole dynamic come about you're jumping 20 years rajni because at that time in 1979 when we went through this crisis we were a very small organization but the selection of the people who worked with us was deliberate we only chose scheduled caste scheduled tribes obcs and they were not powerful enough to buck the higher castes and the rajputs and the brahmins and the jats so when it came to a crisis that we were facing they were in the background they would help us quietly but they wouldn't come out in front and shout and scream against them because that was a completely different situation there and as a result of us investing in such people there's been a great leveler for us because those people stood by us even after the crisis all along what was that value frame which you applied when you selected such people or you know built this team what were some of the key values that you looked for definitely anyone working with us in telonia would have to work on minimum wage and the highest and the lowest ratio would be 1 is to 2 the highest and the lowest and we would self evaluate at that time not anymore but at that time when we were growing we would self evaluate ourselves about our performance and about our contribution to the organization and we'd give each other points honesty integrity cooperation innovation out of 100 points 3 was given to your educational qualification it didn't matter whether you were illiterate or not but this is your contribution to the organization that made a big difference because I lost all my points because my community contact was zero. So my salary was somewhere in between. So they all felt that I had also to be judged. It can't be only the staff because I was a part of them. So that made a big difference that the salary I was getting is much less than lots of people in the organization. I mean Gandhi was almost dead in many parts of India. So we said simplicity, austerity, honesty all very important. for us and we have to abide by that we have to have a code of conduct for that and that we laid down very early in life but laid down in a participative manner very participative very participate very open very transparent very accountable so it didn't feel like there was a politburo that was handing down these values i mean aruna roy made sure that that at least <laughs> no politburo at all and i was slapped on the wrist many times that was good but that gave us a lot of uh, confidence that this was a society which not only worked with the poor but also set an example how we should work with the poor and that helped me a lot in the planning commission when i was there that's in the rajiv gandhi administration yeah in 1984 83 rajiv gandhi came back into power as prime minister and he asked me to join the planning commission to help him form a policy for the voluntary sector for the first time for the seventh plan At that time, of course, Vinod Pandey, Debu Bandopadhyay, all were in secretaries to government of India, and they gave me a mandate. They said, "Write me the first policy statement of the voluntary sector for the seventh plan." And I said, "I hate this word NGO because that's a negative way of defining positive action." So I thought, 
voluntary sector would be much better. Now it's become more respectable by calling them CSOs. But at that time, the voluntary sector stuck. So I went about, I said, I told Rajiv, I will only take one rupee because I had to sign the Official Secrets Act. So I'll take one rupee. Okay. So I started, wrote the policy statement of four pages. I went to Somaya. Somaya was then the secretary of the Planning Commission. Somaya said, who do you think you are? You think this will ever pass? This is a way that the voluntary sector writes a policy paper. This is a government seventh plan document. Where, which world are you living? I said, Mr. Somaya, I hope you don't mind if I try. He says, you can try whatever you want, but this will never be accepted. Same night, by sheer chance, I was having dinner with Rajiv. Rajiv said, what's happening? I said, you've got a very major problem here because they're not accepting what I've written, four pages only. He said, show it to me. I showed it to him. Looks all right, Bunker, what's wrong? I said, please speak to the man on the other side of the table of dinner, Manmohan Singh, Deputy Chairman. He told Manmohan Singh, I said, this four pages seems to be all right. Why is it being rejected? So Manmohan Singh said, if you accept it, then I will accept it. He said, I accept it. I said, hold it. I don't want it in the chapter on public cooperation, which is a deadbeat chapter. I want this chapter in the rural development chapter because you're talking about rural areas. Accept it. Next day, Somaya, livid, he said, you stopped the whole seventh plan document from being printed because your four pages is going to be in the rural development chapter. Told you I'm going to try. So it became the first policy statement. In that, there were two major points that was included. One was that the voluntary sector must decide on a code of conduct. And that code of conduct cannot be decided by government. It has to be decided by the voluntary sector. And voluntary sector, that code must decide how you behave yourself with your communities and how you behave with government. That code has to be done. So there was a national debate from 1984 to 1988 on this code of conduct, which split the voluntary sector right down the line. Yeah, yeah. You appeared as Darth Vader, I remember. Absolutely, absolutely. I was the public enemy number one. I loved it. Because the larger, bigger organizations were against the code, the smaller groups were for the code. So that uh, was a very big, big uh, debate, the first debate of its kind on the voluntary sector and the code of conduct today. So I think that was one contribution that I did to the government while I was in the government. So, Bunker, going back now to Thelonia and the next phase which emerged, which I think we can call the Solar Mama phase. I mean, you did it long before uh, solar was fashionable. And what are the key takeaways from that experience which you would highlight here that give us a sense of what are the possibilities going forward on the positive side of the technology story? Technology and people and democracy, all three together. We have two campuses in Thelonia, and both are fully solar electrified. We have 300 kilowatts of panels on the roof. So for the next 25 years, I have no problem with power so long as the sun shines. I have visited about 60 countries around the world, over 60, and 36 of them in Africa. And what do you see? You see very old men, very old women, and very young kids in the village. All the youth have gone. They've all left looking for jobs in cities. So, brainwave, why not train women to be solar engineers from these very villages which are inaccessible, away from the grid, and they're wasting 
ten dollars a month on kerosene candles. What year was this, Bankar? Nineteen ninety-seven, maybe. So I said, why not train women? And even if they're illiterate, so what? Let's see if we can train them to be solar engineers. So we started with Afghanistan. I went to Afghanistan, and we chose three women to come to Tilonia. And the women said, I can't go without the men because they won't allow us. So three men also came with them. Six months of hell for them because it was in the heat of summer. But they became solar engineers. How did we make them solar engineers? By sight and sound. No written or spoken word. We have a manual which is only pictorial, where you can learn how to be a solar engineer just by following the manual in six months, which means that you can fabricate, install, repair, and maintain solar systems and solar lanterns in six months. And the beauty is that anybody from anywhere in the world who is illiterate, woman between 35 and 45, can become a solar engineer. Every day must be practice and practice, practice up to six months. I think that our mind is good and clear. So then I went to the Ministry of External Affairs and I said, under India Technical Economic Cooperation, why don't we have a collaboration? So in 2008, they declared us training institute, the only voluntary CSO organization among the 40 as the training institute. So we trained 40 women every six months since 2008. And as a result, we have about 1,700 women from 97 countries who've been trained as solar engineers. When the Prime Minister heard of this, he wanted to meet them in Tanzania. So in 2016, he met the 30 solar mamas from all over Africa in Tanzania. And he called them solar mamas. So that's how the solar mamas stuck. It was the Prime Minister who called them solar mamas. Today, we are thinking that it has become a, I mean, it's been established that you should send me any woman from any part of the world who is illiterate from a rural village, we can train that woman to be a solar engineer in six months. We try, we've done it from the Pacific all the way up to Chile. And the program is still running? Still running. And it's been a success story all the way. When President Macron came to India in 2018, the ministry asked us to get the solar mamas to Delhi and welcome Macron. They sang Hamonge Kamya, We Shall Overcome in Hindi and English. And that Prime Minister went crazy, Hindi and English, Hamonge Kamya. It was really great fun. Shushma Swaraj was there, everyone was there. And then the Prime Minister Macron said, no, I want to meet the Sula Mama separately. So we had to herd the Sula Mama separately into a room, and Macron was there. Because he spoke French, we got a solar mama from Ivory Coast to speak. She spoke French. And she said, what the hell do you think you guys are doing? I am an engineer now. I was an illiterate woman in the Ivory Coast. And this is what you should be doing, training us to be solar engineers. And he turned to the development corporation people and said, every solar engineer who comes from a French-speaking country, you give them the solar equipment. 
And what do we give them? Not solar power plants, but solar units in every house. So you decentralize and demystify right down to the household level where a solar mama looks after the repair and maintenance for which they get paid by the community who are already paying $10 a month for kerosene candles instead of that they pay for the solar unit. And so now you have the first and only technically and financially solar electrified village in the world. Right, right. But this is an insight for the macro level. You just said two very crucial things. Decentralized and household-based. What is stopping the world from doing this? Business. Everyone loves the centralized system. Everyone loves the solar power plant. Today, you see Rajasthan. There are Rajiv Gandhi Seva Kendras all over Rajasthan with one kilowatt of solar panels on every house, all lying damaged, destroyed, wasted, not using it because they don't have anyone to repair and maintain. So you're saying it's a business vested interest that is preventing this very obvious knowledge, which clearly the government is aware of. Because as you just gave several examples of their involvement in the program. Yeah. We like bash on. We are not going to stop. Somewhere, somewhere is going to click. Somewhere, someone is going to say this is not the answer. Somewhere, someone is going to say, look at these instances. When we trained those solar mamas from Afghanistan and they went back, they solar electrified one village, Badakshan, the first solar electrified village to be done by a woman. Guess how much it cost? Bringing three men and three women to India, flying them into India, training them for six months, buying 150 units of solar panels, transporting them by air into the village, solar electrifying the whole village. You know how much it cost? The cost of one UN consultant sitting for one year in Kabul. And there are 700 of them sitting there. Not one has solar electrified the village. It's a shame that the UN can't even think of some simplified solutions like this. Because their education is degree-based? Absolutely certified-based. Everything is certification. Certification doesn't establish competence at all. Not in the educational system in India, certainly not. Today, you have people who are mechanical engineers who don't know, who never cast a spanner in his life. You have people who are head of hand pump programs who've never seen a hand pump in their life. When I went to Peru and I asked the head of the solar program, look, I'll give you 20 parts of a solar lantern here and 20 parts of a solar lantern here. Get the man who's come from Stanford to put this together. I'll get you a grandmother who can put this in half an hour. He said, this Stanford man will never know what to look like. He doesn't know what to do with it because it's all theory and no practice. It's the practice man who's the woman you want. And this is the educational system that we should have to push because this is the answer to India. Not going to... I mean, third part, Rajini, I'm the only Dosco and St. Stephen's College man who's been 50 years in a village in the whole educational system. There's not one person from Doon School or St. Stephen's has ever gone into a village and stayed there. This is a reflection on our system. What was the secret to your success in carrying the work across the world? Faith. You have to have faith in the people to be able to do it. You have to show it. It takes me two days to speak to the whole community in Africa to send a woman to India. First of all, there's resentment, there's hostility, there's anger saying, why are you wasting your time taking a woman all the way to India? That was the process of which convincing people that fears they have, are they going to be sold to the Arabs or they're not going to come back. All these absolutely genuine fears. But 
I see the woman having guts, absolute guts to be able to go there. Can you imagine 19 hours on a plane, never been on a plane in her life? Can you imagine her coming to India and not being able to speak the language for six months? So in a sense, it became a commitment formation exercise because you could easily have taken teachers from India and sent them across the world. But you chose to do the opposite. Because when you have 40 women sitting on one table, not being able to speak the language, all chatting away but not understanding a word because they're speaking Swahili and Spanish and English and Jola, they had a feeling of solidarity. For the first time, I might be illiterate, but there are 90 other, 20 other people who are illiterate just like me. If they can do it, so can I. But if I sent a trainer to Africa, it's not the same. Because you don't get that feeling of solidarity of staying for six months together, eating together, working together, speaking together, making friends, and they're still friends today. That is the secret. Bring them together. Faith. That's important today. You know, when the Afghan woman went and solar electrified her village for the first time, she went and sat with the men. And the men said, who do you think you are? You should be sitting with the women one kilometer away. And she said, today, I'm not a woman today, I'm an engineer. And I have every right to sit with you because I've solar electrified your village. Hit them between the eyes. Everyone who goes has problems. Every woman who's come from Africa have gone. All the husbands say, you go, I'll get myself another woman. You go and get yourself, go on. In spite of all these threats to go, they go as a grandmother, come back like a tiger. They solar electrify the whole village in front of everybody. And men are in total awe. They cannot understand what we've done to this woman. And most of them say, come back. And the woman says, no, I'm quite happy without you, brother. I don't want, I'm single, I like it, I'm fine, I don't want to be married to you anymore because now I've got my freedom. So when you ask a woman in Thelonia, what is the benefit of coming to Thelonia for six months? I don't have to cook for six months. I don't have to look after my children for six months. Husband appreciates me much more now if I go back. All these spin-offs we don't think of. And community recognition and acknowledgement. Absolute. Most important. When you speak to them first time and they say, are you... She speak to the youth. Are you willing to be trained by your grandmother? They say, no, 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 I don't want to be trained by my grandmother. But when they come back and solar electrify the village, everyone wants to be trained like by the grandmother. Because now she's no longer a grandmother, she's an engineer. I'd like to go back a bit when Aruna started, when she started the MKSS. The major message that Aruna's organization was giving was a social audit, that you have to have a social audit. So Bhairav Singh Shekhawat was chief minister, and he said, Ki you are asking me to do a social audit. What about your husband? Are you doing a social audit? Are you asking? So she promptly came back and said, you better do a social audit on Thelonia. So in 1987, we did the first social audit of the Barefoot College in SWRC. And we documented it, how you should do a social audit, what documents you should prepare, and who you should speak to, and who are the committee members who should be a part of it. And the MLA we called at that area is now the governor of West Bengal, Jagdeep Dhankar. But then he came, and we actually managed to show what documents you must produce to have a social audit. What you get as a salary, why you're traveling business class, what is the salary structure, all this happened in that social audit. And we made a film. At that time, I was also in Kapat the governing body of Kapat. 
Council for Advancement of People's Action in Rural Technology ka part. Yeah, yeah, at that time it was a very large organization. It was a very large organization. So I said, why not? We have a social audit. This film, which we are making as a social audit, that all voluntary organizations actually conduct a social audit among themselves to show that they are transparent. They got nothing to hide. So we made one thousand copies and sent it to all the ones we know who was on the governing body and the general body. Everybody, not one, did a social audit. And that was a real shocking for me. I said, "What have you got to hide? What has this voluntary sector got to hide? Why aren't you conducting a social audit? Why can't you be courageous enough and gutsy enough to tell the community where your money is coming from, how much money is coming, and for what purpose?" So that was a big shocker for us, as far as the social audit was concerned. And I think that that was a message which we found was very disturbing, very distressing that the voluntary sector couldn't rise to the occasion. of having this audit yeah that's your external experience but how did it change you as an organization internally made us stronger there's no question made us stronger i mean the organization consisted of people with very diverse levels of understanding cognitive skills abilities temperaments what kept it all together what were some of the mechanisms of operation or of work culture let's call it work culture i think the key to the success of tilonia is the fact that we had regular meetings right across the board and you couldn't keep anything hidden and everyone had to participate so if you ask someone who's been for 5 years in tilonia how you spent your life in tilonia he said i started as a cook and then i went into the account section and then when i became a puppeteer i am now I'm a solar engineer so the mobility within the organization was encouraged how did you because see this is quite a big breakthrough especially in a rural setting i mean even in an urban setting how did this come about was it a combination of your taking a stand and a buy in from the community of activists that took shape it's not an idea that was natural to the geographical context i think it was important for the founder to have enough confidence in the people who worked with him and the founder had to give the space for people to make mistakes and learn that was a very important part of it so when someone made a mistake and said i'm sorry i said doesn't matter you try again because it doesn't matter if you fail there's no such thing as failure it's just that it didn't work out so i think that was very important to put into the people's head that don't think of anything called failure there's no such thing as failure it's just that it didn't work out and you try again so we gave them the space and we gave them the wherewithals to be able to try again so we would in fact push them out of tilonia to start the new organizations now there are 23 organizations in 13 states of india who are on their own registered themselves had their own organization had their own board raising their own money and i said you cannot use bunker roy as a name because our job is to make you feel the confidence to be able to start a new organization and we'll support you for the first two years and then you're on your own and that happened so i was against this whole thing about harijan sevak sangs and sevas why If I started a Harijan Sevak Sang office in Orissa, why should I call it a Harijan Sevak Sang? If I started a Seva office in UP, why call it Seva? Call it something else. Doing the same work as Seva, but Seva is your parent organization. 
Seva is your parent organization. You grew out of Seva. And Seva will always support you from the back, always. But at least have your own identity. Your own identity is important. And it cannot be latched on to someone like me. So I said, you can't use Barefoot College, you can't use SWRC, you have to have your own name. Bankar, what, if we now think of the larger society, India as a whole, what is the possible theory of change that emerges from all this experience? I think one of the underlying assumptions of your work was, uh, that is, at least it looked like that to all of us from the outside, was that this should automatically start being copied. And as you've just described, it did in several places. Yet, these approaches have not informed and transformed the country as a whole. And I'm saying the collective voluntary sector. So, how will that happen? Rajni, a simple solution is the most difficult to implement. There is no urban solution to a rural problem. There is a rural solution to a rural problem. We haven't even explored that. We are always thinking that there has to be someone from outside to actually bring in a solution, which is a myth. It has to be from below. Gandhi, it has to be bottom-up. has to be someone from below to be able to carry this through. You have to take the people into confidence to be able to make it work. And we haven't been able to do that. We have shown what is possible, but we haven't been able to do that. Why is it not possible that just because we come up with the ideas, because there is, a, I think, you know, the biggest threat to development today is the literate man and woman. Explain. They have come up with some ideas from the educational system, which is damaging, which is out of control. The biggest problem with the educational system today is that you've taken courage away from the young people. They don't want to take a risk. They don't want to do something out of the box. They don't want to fail as if that is going to be a reflection on them. This is the biggest problem today. What about the youth in Thelonia itself? Bunker? They all want to get government jobs. They all want to get into, they all want to get into be a policeman. But our success story with the Shiksha Niketan for the last 20 years has been that we have generated enough jobs in the rural areas and not in the urban areas. So we've had Thanadars, we've had Gram Sevaks, we've had Patwaris, we've had uh, health workers, we've had, all these are people who stayed back in the village and they have actually contributed. But only in government jobs. Are there some who have managed to stay back? Self-employed. Yes, they have. There are some people who stayed back. 70% of the several thousand people who've gone through our Nashiksha Niketan have stayed back. They're masons, shopkeepers, politicians. All these people have actually been, actually grown out of the Shiksha Niketan school that we have, the experimental school that we have. But is this, is this an oasis? Because what one reads based on many contemporary reports is that the rural youth defines itself, its aspirations uh, with the metros as the benchmark. And is that true from what you see? Rajni, you ask any rural youth, who is your role model? Who are the role models? It's not Gandhi. It's Amitabh Bachchan, it's Shah Rukh Khan. All these people are role models. What have we done? They do not look, look up to people who are simple, who are doing some great work on the ground, who are helping communities. They're not looking up. They're not role models for them. They're fools. 
you are wasting your time. They look down on their parents for doing this sort of work. How can you change that? You have mass media which is bombarding them with all these success stories from the urban areas. How do you expect them to not react? So what is your vision then, bunker of the future going forward? I think it has to be from the bottom. It can't be from the top. No, but the structural violence is from the top, no? The structural violence of the macroeconomic system, the pillage of natural resources from the base. We don't think so much, Rajni, on this, on the global macro side. I want to see whether we can get a ration card for someone properly. I want to see if you can get some food, food to eat. This is my major problem today. The macro doesn't bother me at all and I'm not even interested. I want to see that within the area that I'm working, I can improve the quality of life of people. Why? Because I want to see that they don't migrate. We have managed to reverse migration by the thousands because people have lived back in the village. That is important. For me, the macro doesn't matter at all to me. You know, His Holiness, when he came to Thelonia. Dalai Lama. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, came to Thelonia. He said something very profound. He said, now that you've shown the Barefoot College working in practice, let's see if the experts can make it work in theory. We're doing everything wrong. We're not following the classical theoretical concepts of development. And yet we're making a difference. Because why? Because we are depending on the human side. It's the human being we have to change. It's the human being who will change, who will make the difference. And that is your job. Your job is to change the human being from within. So, Bankar, in closing, on this high note, what is the plan for the rest of your life? I got so many non-electrified villages to solar electrify. I got so many solar mamas who want to come. I mean, south of the equator, when people say, how do I select the country? I say, I go to the UN Human Development Report. And I go to the last country and I work myself up. So the last country at that time was Somalia, Democratic Republic of the Congo. They've all come. They've all come. So if I can prove, if the Barefoot College can prove that this model is replicable anywhere in the world, what more can we do? And then what about after you? What happens to SWRC? What is the succession plan? There is a team in place. They are hesitant, but there's a team in place. Now the team is much more interactive because now we have SBI fellows as well as the people on the ground. So there is a professional... But the SBI fellows are a transient. Some of them stay forever. There is one or two people who've been to Oxford and they say that whatever I'm learning in Oxford, I'm learning in Thelonia, so why do I have to go to Oxford to do that? Every generation produces some young people who step out of the beaten path and, you know, go in search of their Thelonia. Okay, whether they do it in technology, whether they do it in health, education, so many fields. And same is happening now. What are some of the key, you know, kind of lessons from your life that you would share with them? With the dreamers, with the, you know, restlessly innovative, want to make the world a better place youngsters. I tell them, you get onto a train and go 50 kilometers outside your city and get off that station, small one, and see if you can survive for one year without money, without ideas, without projects, and see if you can adapt yourself to the lifestyle. Because you're used to a hundred miles per hour lifestyle. All of a sudden, when you go to a village, it is zero miles per hour. Can you last? Can you adjust? Can you adapt? You can't. At least you've given yourself a chance. 
that you can do it or you can't do it. That is very important for us. I'm always hopeful because when the youngsters come to Naya, I see a bright spark. They're lasting out. I think I'm, I get great admiration for them. Thank you so much. Grassroots Nation is a podcast from Rohini Nalekani Philanthropies. For more information, go to rohininalekanifilanthropies.org or join the conversation on social media at rnp underscore foundation. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you for listening to Grassroots Nation.